Hello there everyone and welcome to another episode of the 1201 podcast. I'm Callum Roper, I'm hosting today, but we still have Callum Watt with us. Hello. We still have Bradley Alsop. Hi folks. And we still have Ollie Welwyn for his second episode. Hi guys. Brilliant to have you all with us again. Um, So it's been quite an exciting week for politics for once during COVID. We've had a lot more than just COVID to talk about. Um, Obviously in times where we're lifting the lockdown, there seems to be a lifting of the political discourse going on in the country. Um, Certainly within Labour circles, we've seen a a spike in, uh, not in COVID cases, but a spike in tensions. Um, So over the last week, we've seen a court case settled with the Labour Party, which has seen a number of people. Um, If you remember the Panorama documentary from last year, uh, a number of people accusing the Labour Party of having a culture of bullying, of anti-Semitism, of not dealing with cases of of racism and abuse properly. Um, And that has since been settled out of court. The Labour Party has agreed to pay damages to these people. Um, admitting in a statement that it was it was effectively wrong to call these people politically motivated in their concerns that they raised in the documentary, uh, it it said that it it was going to apologise, and this is uh, according to some opened the doors for more cases against the party, not the least after the leaks earlier this year uh, that described. Uh, and a number of members of staff within the Labour Party to be undermining the leadership and undermining the uh, the election efforts in 2017, and undermining the Corbyn leadership certainly over its 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 final months. So, Bradley, what, what's your initial reaction to this? Um, I, I suppose it's the the story that just keeps sort of slowly rolling on, isn't it? Um. I, th- I think the thing that, that baffles a lot of people from the outside, and probably quite a few people from the inside, is that n- none of this should have really been difficult to deal with. Um, you know, you, you've got you, you've got a party of 500,000 people. There there are going to be some people in there that, that do and say things that, that aren't appropriate and aren't correct. Um, so, you know, but, but that, that shouldn't really be... So it's, it's not the fact that these things are happening, I, I don't think, is the problem. The problem is, is that you need an efficient process to deal with it. And it, it, it really shouldn't be difficult in a, in a party that, that's over 100 years old to have quite clear and, and simple disciplinary processes. Um, that, it, you know, something, something is evidenced as having happened, there's a clear breach, and there's a clear set of sanctions that go along with that, you know, get, going from minor breaches to severe ones, essentially getting someone expired from the party. None of that should really be difficult, um, and I think that's what I think that's that's what so many people feel uh, frustration with, with with the story that has now been going on for years. This, you know, this saga has been going on for years. Um, we, we got a bit of an answer to to why it's been so difficult um, earlier on in the year with, with some of the leaks. Um, in that there were people, it, it quite quickly became attached to the wider Corbyn project. This issue of disciplinary processes um, and and how and how the party was dealing with it. Uh, so it, it became clear from those leaks that there were certain individuals and factions within the party that saw uh, not dealing with these issues as a way to gain political capital over Corbyn. 
so that that partly explains, I think, what why it it um it hasn't been dealt with the way it should. Um, as for sort of legal cases against Corbyn, uh, you know, I I don't really think there's there's any justification for that. Um, it, you know, so there there is also sort of a sense of you know he he's not the leader anymore. He's not really on frontline politics. Um, I'm I'm sure he probably wants to be able to put that area behind him a bit now as well. So I I, d- I don't really I, I would doubt if an actual proper legal case get, gets launched against Corbyn himself personally. Um, but I, I certainly hope it doesn't. Um, I, I don't think he really did anything wrong. I, I do also think there is an element of um, how much actually should disciplinary processes be up to the leader, because at the end of the day, the leader is an elected position, um, and and these sorts of processes within a party should actually be to some degree separate from the leadership office. Um, this disciplinary procedure, you know, like you know, I I work in um, in the, the shoe movement. You know, you're not going to have an elected president um, this determining uh, disciplinary policy from you know single handedly um, for for students that that have acted in in a way that's not appropriate. So I I don't think really the book should stop with the leadership office when it comes to to the minutiae of, of disciplinary processes. I think that should be separate from the leadership. To yeah, degree. and just for information, the. Uh... The um, fundraising for Jeremy Corbyn's uh, potential legal case that passed two hundred and fifty thousand pounds in the last twenty four hours. Which I mean, you know, whether this case is going to happen or not, I think that's an incredible statement from party members to say that we back him still. He may not be the leader, um, but there's a clear movement to defend him and say that he hasn't done anything wrong, which I think's um, which which I think is incredible from the party membership specifically in such a a time of financial hardship. Um, Callum, I know you donated to this um, legal fund. Um, what would you like to say about it? Do you think that there there seems to be still some sort of axe to grind against Jeremy Corbyn from a number of people on the right? I mean, I think as um, as Bradley said, there are a lot of these, these think it's 32 uh, former party staffers um, have been credibly alleged to have deliberately sat on anti-Semitism cases um, for uh, to to basically create a political storm, and then, and I think it's important to emphasise that many of those complaints were quite legitimate. Um, you know that they were they were genuine complaints about anti-Semitism by Labour Party members um, that really needed to be dealt with. Um, and they didn't do that. Um, the or they allegedly didn't do that. Um, it's notable that um, up until most of those people left in 2018, and what happened in 2018 is that uh, having been on a knife edge for several years, uh, the National Executive Committee, which is not the sovereign body of the party, but it's the governing body of the party, therefore controls all appointments. Um, suddenly Jeremy Corbyn was finally in control of that. So although the leader of the Labour Party is very powerful, he's not all powerful. He certainly doesn't have direct control over staffing matters within the party. But once he had control of the NEC, a lot of those people left um, and they were replaced with people like Jenny Formby, um, who actually then started dealing with uh, the, that backlog of anti-Semitism cases. Um, so it's, I've always found it quite, uh, you know, ironic that 
uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Jenny Thornby, they get it in the neck for uh, allegedly enabling anti-Semitism in the party when they actually did uh, arguably more uh, to, to, to deal with it than their predecessors did. Um, and so I think the, the party have, uh, look, I mean, some of, some of the comments on that, uh, on that legal fund have been alleged to be anti-Semitic. There are 7,000 individual donations. Um, I don't know whether it's reasonable to go through them all. Um, but the, the, I think the point is that he really, uh, I don't think he's got any reason to fear being taken to court. And I think that if he were to suffer as a result of a civil case against him, that would be uh, sort of d deeply unfair. Um, and that's why people that's why people are sta standing up for him because they can see that in, they can see that injustice. I think in terms of the Labour Party's response, um, they made that settlement last week um, to to some of those people. Uh, who were uh, allegedly libeled. Um, the amount is supposedly something like half a million. Uh, there are more claimants in the pipeline. Um, I don't know, I'm not party to the, the party's finances, but it doesn't seem like a particularly sound strategy to start just doling out money when you have a credible defense um, in court. Um, and, the, and the final thing is that we know this is being done to try and put a lid on things, right, to, to end the political storm. As Jeremy Corbyn put it, it's, it's the, the, the settlement's being paid out for political reasons, not legal ones, uh, in his opinion. Um, and uh, I, think I, I think I agree with that uh, at, the, at the end of the day. Um, but it's not working because this scandal is just going to keep rolling on, as, as Bradley said. So it's not just bad politics uh, and bad finances, it's bad finances as well. Um, so I kind of hope that, in, part of me hopes that the, this guy, Bob Ware, I think his name is, does try to sue Jeremy Corbyn because then maybe we'll finally find out what the truth is. Yeah, I think I think that's important to reiterate that it is a political um it's it's a political saga it's not wholly legal it may be uh, brought to the courts but this is this is politics that's been going on for a long time in the labor party um you know and it's manifested itself in some very ugly forms and as a party we're always reminded that we're a broad church and i mean um during the leadership election we were constantly reminded of of the unity platform that all of the leadership candidates stood on um but recently, a lot of people have been feeling that there is no unity in the party. Um, a number of people following these, these latest revelations have decided to leave the Labour Party. Um, they've, they've said that they, they can't justify paying their membership if their membership is going towards these legal payoffs, you know, compensating people that have, that have been given money as part of these legal cases they've brought against the party, they feel that they can probably make a bigger difference elsewhere in, in whether it be in different parties, whether it be in a completely different political sphere of, of activism for, for charities or local, local groups for things like hospitals. And that's a real shame because I think we've lost a number of 
great people from the Labour Party recently because of this saga, because they've had enough. It's taken their toll. It's taken toll on its on their mental health. It's taken its toll on their willpower to keep going. And it's it's difficult. I mean, the 2019 general election took a lot out of us. You know, fighting an election in a winter where it's raining, it's freezing cold, is horrible. But then to continue to be beaten with a stick, a lot of people have had enough. Bradley, you wanted to come in. Yeah, and, you know, we've talked about this before on this podcast, and I think... Um, I've never, I've never seen a Labour government as a, as a, an end goal. You know, it's a, it's a means to an end. So, you know, and this is the key point when, when people say, oh, you know, we must get a Labour government at any cost. It's like, well, it's not true, is it? it it's not at any cost. Um, for me, what I want is, is socialism. I want a, a, a country and eventually a world that runs along democratic, eco-socialist um, values. I think that's the only way to, to save the planet. Um, so as long as the Labour Party is in some way advancing those aims, then I'm happy to continue to support it and put energy and money and time into it. Um, but I think the problem, a lot of people that joined the party in the Corbyn movement, um, who, who saw then, I think quite rightly, the Labour Party as a, as a way of getting towards that. I, I, I don't think a Corbyn government would have meant right job done, but I think it would have been an important step towards it. Um, but now a lot of people that joined into that movement are now sort of saying, well, well, well hang on a minute, we've got Starmer, um, we've got this nonsense going on um, with Corbyn, with Rebecca on Bailey, um, we, we're seeing um, lacklustre or, or simply wrong-headed approaches to Black Lives Matter, um, to policing, uh, to, to calling out the Tories on the Salaf of the NHS, to, to calling out the Tories on the handling of the COVID crisis. Yeah, so people are looking at that and they're thinking, well, actually, it is Labour now actually a, a necessary step along the way to socialism? Um, and and I think for a lot of people, a lot of people have already made that decision and they said, no, actually, it's not. Um, it's a step in the wrong direction. Um, I, I I haven't made my mind upon that yet, um, but it it's looking increasingly bleak within the party. I think um, I I do think you know we are a local blog uh, and pod, so I, I do think there is a local element to it as well. Um, I, I think if I wasn't part of a, a fairly um, active local party, well, active in normal times, obviously, we're not at the moment, um, but, but, you know, we're, we're a party that, that has the city council in Lincoln and we have some representatives in the county council and we've got a, fa- a fairly active membership that, that meets regularly in normal times. Um, I think if it wasn't for that and that local context in which it's quite clear how we, we could locally work together as the Labour Party to, to do things locally, I think I would be even more likely to, to probably leave the party. Um, because if all that was left was the national level uh, and that looking how it is at the moment, it, it wouldn't look good really. Um, so I, I do think people need to consider the local as well um, and, and what, what the context is in their local area and what the Labour Party is like in their local area as well. Um, and, and I can understand if someone is a, is in a, a local party that isn't very active or hasn't got many members or, or is really dominated by, by the right. I can understand why someone would see that and then see the national picture and, and decide to leave. Yeah, I suppose, Ollie, I'll come to you now. I suppose really as, a, as an outsider to the party, you know, not as familiar to sort of this internal politics. I would, I'd like to get your reaction on it, really. Yeah, sure. Um, so... Yeah, I think a lot of people are kind of look, looking for the door now. Really, I mean, it was it was fairly certain when 
when Starmer um, sacked Rebecca Long Bailey that he was taking um, like a hard line on on the socialists within the party and the, the grassroots movements. Um, but it's even more sure now. He's um, he, he's paid paid the settlement on anti-Semitism. Um, I think he's done that for two reasons. I think he's he's kind of shifted the blame onto um, Corbyn's tenure and tried to put it put it behind him in a sense. But I think he's also done it to say, I mean, if there's if there's some some kind of claims in a party like this about anti-Semitism, and it's been the subject of of media for the past few years now. Um, however unfounded they are, if it's reported in the media, then then it is likely that people are going to believe it. And it's been such a saga now. I think he just wants to put it behind him. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily the right thing to do in this case because because by 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 paying off by paying off um, off the the anti semitism cases um, he has essentially legitimised the case for it. He's saying, "Well, well yeah, it, it was it was there," and yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's incredibly frustrating at times. I, I can imagine as somebody um, even outside the party, you know, that, that Labour Part, the Labour Party historically has been that one mechanism for change up and down the country that we can see where we can, you know, actually achieve power. People on the left can have positions of power. And it's not always been to the left. We had new Labour, which was quite far to the right in terms of Labour politics. But... I suppose it does sometimes feel like it's it's a real uphill challenge to get that meaningful change. Um, but Bradley's comments about local politics, I think, are extremely important. As we say, we are a local blog. We'd like to talk about a bit of national politics, but our main focus is seeing that that conversation changing locally in Lincoln and in Lincolnshire. Um, so looking at local politics, um, students have come under attack despite the fact that we are... Uh, we're well into a, the university's break during COVID. Um, this came after a story of a local uh, housing group wanted to convert a house that already was a home of multiple occupancy, which is a HMO. They wanted to upgrade it, make it stronger, um, but that needed planning permission. And the local responses to that were one of outrage, one ones of disgust, one person even describing the West End of Lincoln as a ghetto for students. Now, this is obviously disgusting language, and it's completely out of the frame, considering uh, the student housing sector brings £100 million every year to Lincoln. The university itself brings £250 million every year into the local economy. Uh, it's a positive thing for Lincoln. I think it's uh, transformed the area of Lincoln where which was just in a derelict railway yard, mostly industrial wasteland, and it's brought investment into the city and potentially helped boost the rejuvenation of the high street. But my question is to um, to Callum is that do we see a general trend of students being demonised locally and pot potentially nationally, not just on matters of housing and um, uh, sort of their behaviours in cities, but also around the COVID crisis. Are we seeing a demonisation of students again and potentially further so when we get to October when people are coming back to university? Uh, well, it will be interesting to see if students return at all. 
in the in the in the new term, or or in what manner they will, because um, of course in October we could have the second wave, uh, we could have another lockdown. Um, so those 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 are questions. I think sadly the um, you do see some discrimination against students. It's nothing new. Um, you know I experienced it myself when I, when I was a student. Um, and yes, you you can get conflict, uh, uh, especially you know sometimes you get the odds loud party something like that that um, that obviously creates friction with neighbours and and those sorts of things. Um, it can be a challenge to manage that, um, but I think I think the po the point is that I about sort of six seven years ago. Um, the council introduced uh, an Article 4 directive, um, which I have to say I opposed at the time. Uh, the idea was to, to limit the number of HMOs in the city and to, that is to say, houses of multiple occupancy in houses that already existed, if you see what I mean. So, like mostly the terraced houses in the West End, the East End, and Sinsel uh, Bank, that sort of, that sort of housing. Um, and to shift the focus on to purpose-built student accommodation, which is pretty much what has happened. Um, and I opposed it at the time because um, I thought that rents would go up. Um, actually, although rents have gone up, it's not that reason. It's because of a general trend in uh, across the country, across the entire rented sector, um, because there's a lack of housing. Uh, those are uh, external forces that are acting on it. Um, what we really need, of course, are rent controls. Um, and especially if you look at, I mean, when I came to Lincoln, um, I was in purpose-built student accommodation on campus. Um, my rent worked out to about 70, £75 a week, which felt like a lot then. Um, but now for the same sort of accommodation, you'd probably be spending, what, 110, 115 I pounds a week. I think those ones like are that. 120 a week so, now. Yeah, yeah. So almost, you know, almost approaching twice as much. Um, and I think that's that's the real scandal with um, with with uh, students' accommodation, indeed the rented sector in general. Um, I think it was right to move on to uh, to try and push towards purpose-built student accommodation. Um, it's not always easy to manage community relations, of course, um, but I'm, I'm not really sure what the solution to that is. Um, yeah. Apart from, yeah, Bradley, yeah. you wanted to come in. Yeah, uh, I mean, this isn't anything new, is it? Um, if, if you look at the history of students, you know, for, for centuries, there's whenever there's been a group of students gathered at a university, um, there's been conflict with 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 the town. You know, but back in the early back in the Middle Ages, when we had a, a handful of universities in Europe, you, you would see um, armed conflicts between you know students at universities and, and townspeople. So I, I suppose it's a very traditional thing to do in university towns is is to blame students, and and that's not to say that students yeah, never, never deserve blame. We're Sorry. pretty tame by comparison, aren't we? Really? Well, yes. Um, 
and I, I suppose you know throughout history students have haven't helped themselves at times you know there's there's no doubt that students can at, at times uh, be noisy and inconsiderate and loud and all the rest of it um, but also plenty of local people can do those things too um, I I think locally here now anyone that knows me knows I, I've had my issues with the students union here um, for years but uh, they do do they are good members of the local community I think um, uh, a lot of local people you use their services um, particularly Tower Bar um, they they have done they they provide a conduit for a lot of students to get involved in volunteering in, in the local area they they have until the last couple of years the clean ups of the Brayford. So, you know, I, I think, and obviously there's the wider economic impact to the university um, and, and students that then stay and become graduates and stay in Lincoln. So I, I think the student community um, and the university have done a lot for the local area. There are issues sometimes um, and and fair enough to highlight them, but, but there are better ways to highlight them, I think, than just sort of uh, scapegoating all students um, en masse. Uh, I, I think there is a danger. I was at a conference this week, um, SU twenty twenty, from run by Coventry Students Union, um, and uh, the, 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 one of the speakers there, I, I forget the guy's name. Sorry, um, it was a really good talk. But I forget his name. Um, but, but he was talking about what what's going to happen for universities in, in September October time, and 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 his concern was that um, so at the moment you see you know if there's a Black Lives Matter protest and um, there's lots of sort of um, denigration oh well, you, you know you're going to cause a second wave and all the rest of it um if you see lots of people gathered at a beach you see that sort of rhetoric you know that that sort of thing and his concern is what if you have some isolated pockets of students breaking rules when they come back to university so you know that there's a group of students in a house that decide to throw a party when it's against the, the current rules to do so uh one will that actually lead to second waves potentially if enough students you know if you're popular enough to throw a party that gets loads of people there um, but even if it doesn't, will it lead to increased tensions between people in the town and, and university students? And I, and I do think that is an, an important thing to think about, actually. Um, at, at his point, obviously, this was to a group of people that work in students' unions. So his point was, well, what can students' unions and universities do about that? What role do they play in stopping that? Because um, to some extent, a university can't really stop it. They, they can set out the rules all they want. But if, if a group of students want to throw a party, then they're going to throw a party. Um, so I think that is that is a concern that it, it could lead to second waves, but I think the real concern is, is what perception, what that will do for the relationship between students and, and townspeople. Yeah, I suppose we, I think you're both right to mention the fact that students uh, have had this long-standing, um, fractious relationship at times with uh, with with local people. Um, that's certainly not unique to Lincoln. But I suppose the real question that we've got to be asking ourselves, I mean, I'm the community officer for the SU this year, so it's it's right up my street as to what we need to be doing. Um, and I know we're, we're talking about getting more students involved locally in, in charities and food banks and projects in the area, um, you know, trying to break down that wall between the campus and the, the, the rest of Lincoln. Um, there's a very much a focused area that you see lots of students, but there's loads of areas of Lincoln even uphill, you know, even near the castle, lots of students never go up there. And it's about breaking down those barriers, bringing people to realise that students are just here to better themselves. They're here to learn. They're here to educate themselves. And and actually, Lincoln's a great place to be doing that. It's a safe city. It's a fairly compact city. You can walk everywhere. You can cycle everywhere. It's a, it's a great place to live. And it is about breaking that down. And Ollie, uh, I suppose... Can I just add to that? I, I think I think you're you're right in that students um, 
you know, it, it's not the fault of students because the thing you see is that oh, in the Lincoln Light, every now and then they'll share an article saying new new housing development approved for for student yeah. housing or something like that, and, and you'll see people local people kicking off on, in the comments about it, um, and you're quite right in that students come to university to better themselves, um, to to learn, to have an experience, to grow, um, so and. I don't think we should begrudge anyone that chance. I, I've benefited enormously from going to university. And I, I, I wouldn't change that experience for the world. And I, and I think for me, as many people as possible should be able to have that experience. Um, so it's not really the fault of students. And, and if students are coming to university, they need somewhere to live, don't they? So I don't think it's really the fault of the students. If there are issues with local housing, and there are, um, then the problem is in the funding from government, um, the, the lack of powers that local councils have, and the lack of ownership local people have over those schemes. Those are the issues that need to be addressed, not the fact that she's a city. Yeah, um, I think that one of the real positive things of, of universities like Lincoln is that they've given a new purpose to a number of towns and cities that were really off their feet. They had their industry wiped out. They had mass joblessness. Lots of people were having to commute out of the city to to their places of work. And it's, it's, it's brought back investment and brought back... Um, jobs to the city I think over a thousand people are employed at the university the SU is is one of the biggest employers in the city as well you know it's a real positive thing and I think that the university and the SU don't do enough to shout about the positives of having the university and Ollie I suppose as a as a student as well um you were in your third year correct me if I'm wrong um uh Sorry, yeah, I've just graduated, yeah, just, but yeah, just I was, finished I was your third year. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> so still fresh in in the memory. But how do you feel as as a student in Lincoln? Um, you know, do you feel that there's sometimes some tension with local people? Is there a uh, is there a sense that sometimes we're not welcome? Um, yeah, I think there is absolutely those kind of attitudes by a lot of locals. I mean, I, I lived in. Um, in student housing in my third year, uh, sorry, my first year. And then I was, um, I was in the West end for two years. Uh, and it was a lovely area. Um, but I think I did get the feeling at times, I think we had a few problems with neighbors, um, that we, we, we like I was on, uh, Houston road just by West common. And there was quite a lot of, um, quite a lot of tension because there were, there were only a few students on that street. But um, as a whole, it was it was quite a, a family area, I guess, family orientated. Um, but in general, I think yeah, students are absolutely absolutely important to the area. I think there is kind of a lot of divisiveness um, between locals. I think there's a lot of fear at the moment, which isn't going to help um, fear and uncertainty, which isn't going to help um, the return of students, which which could well cause rises in cases. Um, so I think it has to be done safely. Mm. I I, um, I think it was in the Lincoln tab. There was an article just the other day about um, how how is local transport and people coming back to university in the new academic year? How are they? How is the city going to handle that influx of students at the same time? So you know the local press really doesn't help. Callum. Yeah, um, what I was going to say is just some of the. Uh, resentment you sometimes see whenever there's um, student accommodation being built. People uh, complain that why isn't it being built for local people? Um, and that is 
an interesting example of where people have identified a problem um, and then not really, we haven't maybe articulated the solution, yeah. if you see what I mean. So um, people have identified that young people particularly in particular um, are struggling to keep a roof over their head. Many are um, still stuck at home. This is all pre-COVID COVID and so on, or paying extortionate um, private rents. Um, these are relatively small flats uh, that are purpose-built to drive what's... Uh, I don't don't like to, especially Bradley won't like me saying that it's a business, but it's a, you know an economic driver of the university, um, which is driving income as we've discussed for the city. Um, it's not necessarily taking away space that you could use for proper homes, you know, uh, actual council houses, um, and it's not to say that the city council is not trying to build actual council houses either because it built 172 um the uh the year before last um and it's looking to build more and it's acquiring more um so it's not an either or you know it is possible to do both and i think we need to articulate to people that the reason why um people are young people are struggling to be housed it's not because students accommodation is being built it's because the government is not enabling us to build enough social uh, housing. absolutely um i know one of the biggest concerns that i've had around sort of the the regeneration of the brayford area is that where there is housing being built a lot of it's very premium flats um as you can see in the new um, St. Mark's development that's still going up, that's going to have a lot of student houses, but it's going to have a number of flats. And, and the real question local people have got to be asking is how many of them are going to be social houses and how many of them are going to be affordable houses in the truest sense possible, not the uh, industry-defined affordable housing, which we all know is is, is a fraud. Um, so I think you're right in saying that we need to be looking at where we're, point in the blame and I don't think students should be blamed for wanting to come here and better themselves sort of returning to Bradley's point um what we should be blaming is central government for not freeing the shackles of local government to build more social housing um although in Lincoln we're certainly starting to see that change um the western growth corridor is a positive development that's being explored um as you say council houses are being built so when we look at the West End, when we look at Central Bank, when we look at the East End of Lincoln around Monks Road, these shouldn't be a, a, an area for despair for local people. These should be um, seen as catalysts for the local economy starting to regrow, reinvent itself, readjust itself. I think a number of local businesses, pubs, clubs have been kept alive by the student body um, in the city and i think as as covid would likely be a testament to it that without the students local businesses are really going to struggle so unless we find a new way forward say if the university vanishes overnight we would have to reinvent ourselves again and i don't know where the city would go for that because it hasn't got the best transport links it isn't it isn't a manchester or a birmingham or a liverpool or a, or a london 
it hasn't got that that wealth in terms of devolution. It hasn't got that wealth in terms of actual financial support that I suppose we need to consider ourselves lucky that the University of Lincoln is going from strength to strength at the moment and it is attracting not just students locally now but students from across the country and and indeed across the world and that brings us on nicely to um, across the world across Europe we've just had the Russia report released um, this week and in this report um, well the government sat on it and they sat on it for the last 10 months and they continue to sit on it um, they tried to get Chris Grayling appointed to the chair of the committee in charge of this. They failed. Um, he was going to be continuing to sit on it and maybe even completely suppress the report. But we finally had the report out. And there's a number of key features from it. It certainly has been, uh, not I wouldn't say scathing, but it's been critical of the government's approach to this. It said that the government, in terms of the post-Brexit uh, vote, there were some indications that there may have been attempts by the Russian government to uh, infiltrate the vote, to influence voters' thinking. Um, that's very possible. But we don't know if that's happened because in the report it emerged that the government didn't do anything to actually look into these allegations. It didn't actually go digging any further. So in essence, accusing Russia of attempting to infiltrate our democratic electoral system at times is in vain because there's actually no evidence. Um, and that's what this report has said, that why haven't we looked? At least looking would clear up the matter and it would make it a bit clearer. Um, and the second thing from this, which which is, is probably one of the biggest headline grabbers, is this talking of a new Espionage Act. They are very much critical of the fact that foreign operatives can work in this country they can collect information on behalf of their on, part, on behalf of their state but the one thing where they are breaking the law is only when they send that information back so they're allowed to operate as free as they like and i'd just like to get uh, your reaction to that ollie yeah um well it, what it, what the report does show is that russia we have failed to investigate it. Um, and if they're, they're using the logic, well, if, if we don't look, then it's not there. And to many, to, in many, um, in many senses, I, I don't think the government do care. They have failed to investigate Russian interference. Um, they actively encourage Russian oligarchs uh, into our system. And they're the same people that fund their party. So now we know why uh, Boris was so adamant that the report wouldn't be published. Um, because the government haven't really done anything about it, despite knowing about it. It should have been published last November. Um, the only reasons not to are, are bogus, to be honest. He, he did it for political gain, and I think that shows what he thinks of um, our democracy and our political integrity and, and safe elections mm -hmm. as well, which is uh, it's good news for Putin. Absolutely. Um, I suppose one of the, one of the sort of left-wing reactions to this that came out was that this report was very critical of Russian interference, but um, attempts at US interference, for example, in our democratic systems haven't even been mentioned by the mainstream media. Would you say that that's also a concern that actually there's a number of states looking to influence how our democracy operates and how people are voting in this country? Yeah, I mean, I think 
personally, I think that Russian interference um, in, in UK politics and, and UK society is, is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, there are many, many ways that different countries influence our, um, our economy and our public infrastructure. Um, so I, I don't think we should just be looking to Russia. I think this is a more a broader um, kind of introspection. I think that it kind of shows that the Brexit vote, sorry to bring up the B word, but it was never about take, taking back control or, or foreign interference. It was about intolerance, really. It was about shifting the blame. Mm. Um, Callum, I suppose, what was your reaction when you heard the findings of the Russia report? Did you expect more to come out of it or were you... Were you overwhelmed by it? Were you underwhelmed by it? Probably the latter, to be fair. I mean, there's nothing particularly surprising or that, you know, we haven't seen before. Um, I think, I mean, the, um, the whole world of online campaigning, you know, fa- uh, Facebook ads and those sorts of things is still really new. Um, and we have, I don't think we've quite learned how to, to regulate it yet. Um, it is quite scary in a way that, you know, there's whole sections, whole demographics that are seeing ads that the rest of us just won't see. Um, and that's not just limited to whatever foreign states are putting out. You know, that's what political parties are put, uh, putting out uh, or individual lobby groups with money from God knows where are putting out. Um, so it's uh, and it's very and it's very difficult to account for it, because obviously in this country, we've got uh, rules about how much you can spend on elections um, and to some extent where and how you can, uh, can campaign. Um, and we we're a long way behind in terms of regulating and, uh, and controlling that. So I think I think that focusing on Russia really is too is too narrow. Uh, it's too narrow an approach, um, as, as someone else said. It's uh, you have to think about where the influence is coming from, uh, lobby groups in America and, and also in this country as well. Um, and I think this is really, I think it's just the start of that long conversation. Maybe, maybe in like five or ten years' time, we'll have a, we'll have a better, we'll have a better answer. Um, but it is quite worrying at the moment. Bradley, I would say, yeah, not Bradley, surprised. you wanted to come in. Um, I, I think that things like Russian interference are actually we're starting at the end point. You know, these are symptoms of a deeper problem that, that we're not talking about at the moment. And and that is, you know, these, are, these aren't just ads, they're targeted ads. To target an ad, you need data on people. And um, so the, the real issue is the data collection at the start of this process. So Facebook might be showing you these ads, um, but they're also collecting the data on you that, that fuels the targets and targeted ads in the first place. And it's not just Facebook, it, it's companies like Amazon and Google, um, basically any large tech company that would have any sort of access to your preferences or, or personal information and um, there's a fairly good chance that they're selling that to, to third companies and um, to, to for them to then be able to tailor um, services and products towards you and um, there's a really good book on this um, the age of surveillance capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff that I read over Christmas 
Um, and the way she describes it is really good because it's not like a, a sort of a conspiracy theory of, oh, there's a small number of people that control everyone's um, information around the world. What she describes it as is capitalism, but it, it, she calls it digital capitalism, uh, uh, surveillance capitalism, sorry. Um, and essentially what she's saying is if you've got companies that can make a profit out of your personal information, like Facebook, you know, that, that's fairly standard. We know that happens. We, we know that Facebook has some information on us. That's not really a secret. Um, if if some companies can monetize that, if some companies can make a profit out of that, then capitalism's internal logics, which is that um, you have to keep making a profit and expanding your company to make more profit, then that logic takes a hold of that. And what that means is that companies have to keep on um, being more invasive in our in our private lives to get more information in order to, to continue to compete in that marketplace. That's just how capitalism works. So, so she tracks this from you know the early days of Google when you, when you'd be getting ads popping up um, on Gmail and things like that to to the much more sort of sophisticated processes they've got now, even to the degree where it, it's no longer just about being able to try to get knowledge and data on you, but actually be able to influence your actions and, and subtly nudge you towards doing certain things and, and buying certain products that go beyond just a targeted ad on your Facebook feed. So I I think things like Russia. Um, that they're, they're just they're just buying this information. They're just using this information. The, the problem is that the information exists in, and is collated uh, in the first place. Um, and to tackle that, we need to tackle what what Zuboff calls um, surveillance capitalism, which, which is ultimately um, a very small number of corporations around the world owning enormous amounts of data and and therefore money. Yeah, and it's 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 quite a uh, a worrying thought that everything that we're typing, everything that we're saying, even these podcasts could be used in a way to try and influence us while we're online through subtle adverts, uh, tailoring what we see on our on our feeds, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, all the rest of these. And it's, it's concerning. But I suppose the real question is, was this inevitable um, ever since we started to professionalise politics and professionalise... Uh, how we approach elections was it inevitable that we would get the uh, Cambridge Analyticas of the world come into it especially in a in a free market capitalist society where this sort of thing is at times openly encouraged I, I think yes and under capitalism yes because it's it's just inherent to the system and, and its logics and how and how a market system works so I, I think, yes, it's inevitable under mo- most sort of market-based economies um, under a different system, not necessarily. Um, so they do talk about in the book about how in the very early days of the Internet, um, they're, they're, you know, ideally data is collected on you in order to tailor your own experience of that product. So, so if, if Facebook's collecting information on you, um, it's possible in theory for only to use that to tailor your experience and improve your experience. It, it doesn't have to sell it onto third companies. It, it doesn't have to um, do, you know, these sorts of uh, Facebook experiments that have, that have been in news articles and stuff where, where one, what, you know, a couple of million people see one sort of certain thing on their newsfeed and then they study to see how that changes their behavior. You know, Facebook doesn't have to do those things. Um, but it does because it's in a capitalist economy and it, and it has to compete. Um, in order to get bet- better value for its shareholders. Um, but under a different system, it wouldn't necessarily have those pressures on it and it wouldn't necessarily have to operate in that way. Also, it's just, also, it's just irritating, right? Like, you know, I went to buy a, um, a, a tracker for my cat 
nearly two months ago um, and I am still getting bloody adverts for the damn thing um, on, ev on every other YouTube video. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, I think it's broken as well. Like you know, I think it, I think it winds people up and it scares people a little bit um, when when uh, when those algorithms start working their uh, magic, um, as uh, as Bradley so eloquently just described. I I've got that with um, I got Amy some Jaffa cake gin for Christmas uh, for her birthday. Sorry, um, which which was a, a targeted ad. Because um, I think it had overheard a conversation about Jaffa cakes and gin that we had, um, but 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 I did use it and I did buy the gin because it was a really good present for her because she loves Jaffa cakes and she loves gin, um, but it still keeps showing me the same ad um, two months later. And it, yeah, so I've already bought it. Leave me alone. Mm. Um, and yeah. I suppose that that would feed into the the conversation about hate on social media as well, um, because if these algorithms pick up that you. Uh, very much against a certain group of people or you like a certain newspaper's style of reporting things or a certain Twitter account's way of approaching things, then it's going to keep showing you that stuff that you like, that stuff you enjoy to read or, you know, enjoy to hate. And then that, that feeds into the thing that are social media companies responsible enough if they haven't got this regulation, if they haven't, got this moral compass because their only compass is the compass of profit then how can we how can we trust these companies not to be effectively stoking the fire of hate you know much like the jaffa cake gin but a lot more serious a lot more um, damaging for society a lot more damaging for minorities and and people trying to just live their life uh, we'll go yeah I think you know a market doesn't care if you're a racist as as long as you've got money um, and 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 can compete in that marketplace then then a market doesn't give a damn what you're whether you're yeah. a bigot or not. Racist. Ollie. Um, yeah, sure. So um, I think we we've seen we've seen this before with um, with similar scandals like like Cambridge Analytica. I mean the, these these devices have been honed in in democracies across the world. Um, and I think what we need are stronger rights for for data protection and data rights, uh, because our privacy is is important. Um, and I think it's systemic, as Bradley says. Um, the, we need kind of systemic change for anything like this to change, um, because in in a system which is based on money, that's going to be the only factor, right? Yeah, absolutely. And Callum. Yeah, I, I thought um, th uh, there was a really good um, piece about this uh, on Click, which is um, one of the programs that it, the BBC produces that is still good. Um, uh, in between, in between BBC News, which isn't so good. Um, I was watching it yesterday. They and the, the guy who was basically he was going through how. Um, if, say, you search for uh, a white power flag, um, then on, on Amazon, for instance, um, then it will show you, like, white power flags that you may not have even heard of, you know, and it might start showing you weapons as well. Um, and so the algorithm, and 
so the algorithms in that respect are doing something really dangerous. And the point that he makes is that it's one thing to argue that we are libertarians um, and it doesn't matter. We all sell everything on this side. Um, but then Amazon will simultaneously come out and make statements supporting Black Lives Matter, right? Um, which means that you are then automatically taking a political position. So you're a publisher, which means that you're, what you're selling is then contradicting that. So you're saying that you're going to take responsibility for black lives while potentially selling weapons and far-right memorabilia to the people who want to kill black people, right? So it's extremely inconsistent um, at, at best, um, and at worst, obviously, deeply immoral and dangerous, uh, what these companies are doing with their algorithms. Now, the, ish, the, the particular items that the, their report highlighted, um, Amazon removed, and Google removed from their searches and things like that, but we know that they that their algorithms are still promoting the same things. Similar items will have been up probably within minutes. Um, so uh, what we what we really need to change is you know corporate responsibility, I suppose. Um, but how do you enforce that without further infringing on the rights of the free internet, which is another sort of broader debate uh, isn't it absolutely i i think that what we have to do is have that conversation about the the fact that hate makes money but is that morally right that we should encourage that because just because it makes a profit doesn't mean mean it's justifiable in any way whatsoever um companies say that well that we'd lose a lot of customers well, surely that's that's a sacrifice they should be willing to make. If they're going to be making statements supporting Black Lives Matter, then they should also equally be making statements with actions and banning the selling of far-right memorabilia, weapons, sorting out their algorithms so they're not encouraging this this uh, this very toxic atmosphere that we we're seeing online. Um, and and you know it's encouraging people to buy these things. And then putting them on potentially on that path to where they could commit atrocities, simple as really. So there's a lot to be done online, as we know, and we'll continue to be speaking on that. But has anyone got any closing remarks, Bradley? Um, no, actually, I usually try and think of a, a cheery sort of call to arms to, to sum it up, but it was all quite depressing <laughs> conversations today. Uh, uh, no, thank thanks for listening. I Brilliant. suppose everyone. I, I, I do have some, I do have some thoughts. Just referring to the first item that we talked yes. about um, with respect to to, to the Labour Party. Um, Part of my role as a new CLP secretary is I've been picking up, you know, phone messages and emails from some members who have been thinking about leaving. Um, and most of them, actually, I've persuaded them to stay. Um, and what I ask people to do is really to look at the long term. Um, a lot of the people who are thinking about leaving um, have 
joined in the last sort of five years, i.e. In, in the Corbyn era. era. Um, and now, uh, as we discussed earlier, um, they're suffering because of the, because of these changes. Um, and obviously there's a temptation then to turn around and say, well, you know, you didn't know what it was like for me back in the days of Miliband, which I'm sure is something that I've said in the past, maybe. <laughs> um, but if you just look at in the really long run, um, you know, the last time we badly lost an election back in the in the nineteen uh, in the in the nineteen twenties, right? Um, we lost because the first Labour Prime Minister betrayed the movement and went in with the Conservatives. Um, and we were out of power for a, a long, long time. But the labour movement bounced back, um, and within a, a decade and a half, during the Second World War, we were running the country. And then after the Second World War, we rebuilt the country. Um, so, and that would not have been possible without the actions of ordinary Labour Party members and trade unionists. Um, and that's why people really need to stick with it and stay in the movement and keep agitating for change because you get there it may take time but as we've been talking about a lot today there are powerful forces working against us and it takes time to break them down but you will win eventually that's a that's a very encouraging note and ollie anything to close on um no not, not particularly okay, brilliant. uh well thank you again for listening in um we're sorry that it, it wasn't as upbeat as maybe some of our other, other episodes. Perhaps we should return to talking about how to make the perfect cup of tea. Um, but stay safe, everyone. Obviously, adhere to the new rules, um, however vague at times they may seem. Um, and we'll see you next time.